Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture is uh, Hebrews 4, 12 through 5, 10. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is best with weakness. Because of, because of this, he is a obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people and no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him you are my son today I have begotten you as he says also in another place you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save himself from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You can be seated. Thanks, Lincoln. Let's pray together. Father, it's good to uh, come now before your word. Uh, Lord, we pray that our hearts will be opened, uh, that your word would pierce us, that you would direct us by your spirit. Uh, and that we would respond to you day, today in obedience. Father, we confess our hearts, our minds, our attentions are weak. But Lord, we know where we are weak, you are made strong. God, may your power be all the more glorified by just how weak we are. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning I want to uh, think with you about some pretty powerful things that we see out in nature. Uh, I don't know if you as a kid did this or still do this now, but... If you sit just and watch the clouds, they're, they're pretty amazing uh, things in our creation. The way they kind of slowly move, you kind of, you know, deceptively, they seem, they seem just kind of weak and, and small, but yet when they get big and dark, they can cloud out the sun. As strong as the sun is, it can be virtually dark if all the clouds are over top of us. They're that strong, they can block it out. Uh, sometimes that those are, are those big, strong, dark clouds come with a, a storm. I don't know if any of you were woken up Wednesday morning like I was. I think it was Wednesday, where it was just I didn't even know it was going to rain overnight. I'm woken up to the thunder and lightning that was just so loud. It was like shaking the house. 
Uh, and that, that force, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's just these dark clouds, and then somehow, I don't really understand this, but you know, there's electricity going between clouds and, and the ground, and that, that force is so strong, that light is so bright. I mean, it can go from pitch black to like daylight for just that one second, and somehow in that force it makes this sound, and it's this booming noise. There's no speakers outside. Nobody's got a megaphone held up to the lightning so that everybody can hear it. It makes this enormous noise that we, we can hardly even replicate. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, same thing, that same storms come along sometimes with, with powerful winds. And wind can be so gentle, like the wind that blows on me every Sunday from this vent right here, you know? I mean, it can be so gentle. It can, if you're out uh, on a beautiful spring day having a picnic, I mean, the wind can just take a little napkin off your table and just kind of blow it a little ways away. Right? That same wind, when it gets strong enough, whether it be with a hurricane or tornado getting up you know, over 100 or you know, tornadoes, I guess even over 200, they, they can make a roof of a house look like that napkin was blowing off your table, can it? I mean, there's the incredible power, and there's, you can't even see it. It's just wind just blowing things away. Sometimes those same storms, like hurricanes, come with, with a, a, a effects with the water, like a storm surge. Uh, I grew up on the Gulf Coast, so we're familiar with this. You know, what looks like just a very calm beach one day where you're sitting there with your children. You could play in the sand and build a little sand castle right there at the edge of the water and let, them, let those waves kind of gently lap against your sand castle and blow, blow it down. You know, and it's kind of fun with the kids, but come, come a hurricane, a storm surge with, you know, 2, 5, 10, 15 feet of water, it can make a whole town look like your kid's sand castle, can it? That same, that same just a little bit of water. The same, the same thing can make, you know, like if you, if you have a dripping faucet, that little drip, drip, drip noise, you know, just a little noise that you hear from water. You go to an incredible waterfall that's, that's a, a, a raging river falling off a cliff, and that little drip, drip noise turns into this enormous roar, this loud noise you can hear from a long way away. There's all around us, there are examples like that of, of power we see out in nature. But this morning, I want to point you to something that has far more power than clouds or lightning or thunder or wind or water. And it's the power of the Word of God. Because while all those things in nature may be able to move sandcastles and napkins and houses and whole villages, boats, cars, this can move something much harder. That's much, much harder to move. It can move the human heart. The Word of God has far more power than anything else in nature because it moves something far more difficult to move, and that's us. Physically, yes, we may move pretty easily with any force, but to change our hearts, to change our minds, we all know, whether you're a parent trying to change your, your kid's heart and mind, whether you're a, a spouse trying to change your spouse, or, or, or just somebody you know, posting online trying to change people by what you post, it doesn't work, does it? We, don't, we, we can't change people. We want to change people, and yet we can't. Only God can. And he does it through the power of his word. We've been walking through Hebrews uh, kind of this fall semester with the, uh, that we've done so far. And we come now to maybe a, maybe a familiar verse to you. Maybe, maybe you're, if you're around the word of God, you're, you're familiar with this verse. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's worth taking that slowly, even if that's familiar to you, for you to, to, to understand the, the, the power that we see in this. It describes this as the Word of God. Don't take that for granted. He's referencing right before what we saw last week, uh, a quote from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 was written down by a man named David, and yet in, Psalm, in, in Hebrews 4, 
I believe it's uh, verse 7, or 3, 7. Uh, yeah, 3, 7, chapter 3, verse 7. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. So he credits what David took out a pen or told somebody to write down. He says the Holy Spirit said it. God, this is a, an incredible uh, theology of the Word of God here, that we see that God used men to write down words, and yet it was God's Word Himself that was given to us. And now, as Hebrews is, is referencing back to what we now call the Old Testament, Hebrews and 26 other books have been added to that as the New Testament. And so we have 66 books here that are God's Word. The God of all the universe has spoken to us. He has given us His Word. So, of course, it's going to be powerful. And yet, we, we so often look at little Bibles and we think, oh, it's just a Bible. I've got one of those, 20 of those at home. And we think nothing of it. I mean, how incredible is that? That the God of the universe has given us His Word. That's worth pausing and reflecting on and thinking about how amazing it is that we even have something from God. God has given us His Word. And of course, because God is alive, so is His Word. It describes it as living and active. God's Word is not some dead historical artifact that just historians study for the sake of, uh, of scholarly interest and research, right? This is living and active. It has an impact on your life and mine day in and day out. That's, that's incredible that there is a power of God given to us in words that impacts our lives. Now the Word of God itself never changes and the meaning of God's Word never changes. God's truth is firm and fixed. But every generation is different, every culture is different, every person is different. So how that applies to you might be different. God may need to change your life in a way that's different than the way He changes your, your parents' lives or, or your kids' lives. So the application is different. That's why it's living and active. God is working specifically in your life to change you and mold you according to the image of His Son. But it itself, the truth of it, the meaning of it is fixed, it's firm, it's unchanging. It's incredibly powerful that He can do that with one, with His Word. So Hebrews uh, 4.12, we, we see this living, active Word of God, and yet what is, it, what is it doing? We may pass over this. If you're familiar with Hebrews 4.12, you may, you may reference this and not think about it much. But the heart of what it's trying to get at is how it convicts us. So my first call to you this morning is to be convicted by God's Word. Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That is not a, 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 a nursery children's type image. A sharp sword. That is a, 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 a metaphor from battle, right? This is a, not a, just a simple, cute little picture here. This is painful, honestly. It's painful. When it talks about a two-edged sword, it's probably talking about this Roman sword uh, that they would have had called a gladius that was just a little bit longer than two feet or so. So it's not this picture of these big like sword battles, you know, a picture from castle times or whatever, but, but this, this short, two-foot-long or so sword that's meant for personal combat, like right up next to somebody. And the, the, the beauty of this or the, the terror of this uh, was that this sword was designed to be so sharp that it would penetrate people's armor or shields. It was a very sharp, sharp instrument. And that's what he uses to describe God's Word. A sharp, penetrating tool. Why would he describe his Word that way? I mean, surely there's other ways he could have described his Word. Surely he could have come up with some other kind of image or metaphor that would be, I don't know, more comfortable. But a sword that pierces, a sword that, that, that goes deep, that penetrates, that's, that's painful. 
The reason he did this is because it has a very specific purpose. In the, the book that some of you all are reading with me uh, by Michael Kruger, uh, he said that this was made uh, to penetrate the hardest substance on the planet. Not granite or diamonds, but something even harder, the human heart. The reason why the Word of God had to be so sharp is that what it was intended to pierce was sharper than anything, I mean, harder than anything else out there. And that is our hearts. We saw the language of a hard heart in last week's passage where he's talking about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. In Psalm 95, he warns them about their hard hearts. If you have evil, unbelieving hearts that are not receiving God's Word, then your heart is hard. And yet God's Word is what we need to pierce it, to break through, and to change us and transform us. God's Word is like a, a surgeon's knife, right? It is incredibly sharp and incredibly precise. And yet God's word goes deeper in you than any surgeon's knife ever could. A surgeon's knife may be able to get down into your organs, down into your stomach, whatever else. But God's word, it pierces far deeper than that. It goes to your very heart and soul. The way the language here is to the very core of who you are. It's just piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That is, it gets to your, to your very identity, the very core of who you are, your heart, your soul. And so it discerns, it says, verse 12, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, that's, that's deep in us. It's one thing to say, yeah, God's word uh, or God himself knows what you do. He sees you. He sees, he sees what you're doing. It's another thing to know, you know, hey, he knows what your thoughts are. But it's an even deeper level to say he discerns your intentions. He knows just, he doesn't just know what you're doing or, or how you're doing it. He knows why you're doing it. And that is incredibly personal, isn't it? Incredibly personal. That's the level to which the sword penetrates us. It goes so far in our hearts. It goes to our very intentions. Verse 13 describes how nothing is hidden from him, that we're all naked and exposed before him. That's not, does that, that doesn't sound comfortable, does it? That God, God sees us for who we are. He knows to the very core of who we are what's going on. So why, why then, let me ask you this, if God can see who we are and He can already see our intentions, why does the Word need to, to pierce us? Why does God's Word need to reveal those things if God can already see it? Well, it pierces us not for His sake, but for ours, for our sake. In the deep recesses of our hearts, we, we need to know ourselves. We need to know our sin. We need to know the things that we struggle. We need to be convicted. That may not be fun, that may not be easy, but it is absolutely necessary. In the deep recesses of your heart, with who you are and what you do and why you do it, are, do you know yourself? Do you know your temptations and your struggles? If you're honest with yourself about your motives, do you have deep grudges or anger? Do you have deep bitterness in you that comes out only on certain occasions and around certain people? Is there a deep or ugly streak of lust or jealousy or addiction or laziness or materialism or, or hatred, if you can be honest about the, the secret place in your heart, the place that very few, if anybody, know anything about, if, God's, if you allow God's Word to go there, what would it reveal? What would it convict you of? That's what he's getting at. To the very deep, deepest part of you, God's Word wants to pierce there. God already knows it, but if He pierces it, then you know it too. God's Word lay, lays our hearts out before Him on the table, so to speak, so that you can see your heart for what it really is. 
If we could submit our lives to the sword of God's word, then it drives deep in us to our intentions and our thoughts so we can understand our own sin better. That's the word of God's job. That's what it does in our lives. And that's not fun, but it is absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. And if we're honest, we know that. If there's a problem with you, with your physical body, wouldn't you rather know it? Like you could just kind of turn a blind eye and try to, you know, plead ignorance and not think about problems you have. But if you've got, say, diabetes or something, and you're struggling with, with a body and you're, you don't know what's going on, and you just ignore the doctor for a long time and never go ask, you're just going to keep fighting that, aren't you? And struggling, ups and downs. But if you go to the doctor and say, help me figure out what's going on, and he can give you a proper diagnosis, diagnosis what can he do? He, he or she, can, they can help you. They can help you fight this sickness. But you had to be, it had to be revealed first. Something had to come and test you and figure out what's going wrong so you can begin to change. All of us have a heart problem, and God knows it. He knows it. The question is, do we know it? Has our heart been pierced to the point where we know the depth of our sin, that we need a Savior? How well do you know yourself? It may seem foolish to ask that question. I'm with myself every day. I think my own thoughts every day. I've done everything. I know, of course I know myself. But if we're honest, it can be easy to hide stuff from ourselves. We can trick ourselves into thinking that we're really, you know, we're doing okay. And we don't really process our intentions and our hearts and our motives. And that's what God's Word does for us. It pierces us to the level where we can truly know what's going on in our own hearts. So let me ask you, are you, are you in the Word enough where it's piercing you? The, the question maybe that has challenged me as I thought about that sword, I just, that's an image I can picture, this you know, 24, 28 inch long sword. That means you've got to be pretty close, don't you? The question that's challenged me all week is, am I close enough to God's Word for it to pierce my heart? Now, don't, don't misunderstand that question. God, God can convict you however He wants. If He wants to convict you, He's going to do it, right? But when we want to be convicted, which we should, we should want to, to have our sin revealed so we can get rid of it, to cut that tumor out. We, we need God to convict us, and we need to see it. And if we want that, you know how we do that? We stay within 24 inches of God's Word. We stay connected. We stay deeply connected to God's Word. So let me ask that again. Are you close enough to God's Word for it to convict you of sin? Are you in His Word regularly? Are you day by day meditating on the Word of God? Now, I get it. I, I've been doing this for a little while. I know reading the Bible is hard. I, I know that once you get past a few favorite passages and you start trying to branch out and read the whole thing, it, it can be complicated. But God's Word is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And we got lots of people. We can help you. Come to us. Help, let us help you because it's worth your heart being convicted. We have heart problems and we need God's Word to convict us. Be convicted by God's Word. Now, I want you to see conviction for what it truly is because, because our sin is deadly. Our sin, our sin is dangerous. But God's, as God word, God's Word convicts us, He does that in a way that, that leads to our good. It leads to our good, not to our harm ultimately. Because everybody who believes in Jesus, God, God does something with that conviction. But what He doesn't do is condemn you. So I want you to be convicted by God's Word, but God's Word does not call you to be condemned by your sin. For everybody who believes in Him, we are not condemned. Don't be condemned by your sin. The rest of this passage is about the hope that we see. 
So when you read these couple verses in, in, at the end of Hebrews 4 there, uh, in verses uh, 12 and 13, about God's Word, if you can hear that honestly, it's, it's pretty painful, right? But the rest of the passage about, is about the hope that we have. And it's not from a place of condemnation. God's Word convicts us. It does not condemn us because of what Christ has done. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer in Christ, you are not condemned. The Word convicts you, but it does not condemn you. Our, our, our condemn, uh, there is no condemnation for all who believe in Him, which means we will not spend an eternity apart from God. We will not spend our eternity. We will spend it with Him. Now, does that mean that, hey, our, our, actually our sin's really not that bad? We talked about being convicted, but really it's not that bad. No, no, no. It is that bad. And it's worth pausing on that for a minute. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what our sin has merited is death. So it doesn't get worse than that. Our sin is terrible. And that's hard for most people to accept today, isn't it? Maybe if you're around church, you people, you know, you kind of, okay, I get that. But that's not popular out in the world to say that your sin, our actions deserve death. The average person doesn't, doesn't fear standing before God. Most people, if they're not, you know, believers, they haven't been around the Bible, they don't, they don't have this great looming fear about, hey, at the end of my life, I got to stand before the judge of all the universe, if they've even thought about that, they've probably thought, you know, I'm better than the next guy or so-and-so. I'm not, you know, this person. So he'll probably, they're, they're, they won't say it this way, but what they're banking on is God will probably just say, shrug, you know, you're okay. Come on in. I'll take you. Whatever. They think, hey, I'm not, I'm not that bad. So they have no fear of standing before the almighty judge. But that's not good. In the court of law in, in our country, we, we have the right to an attorney, don't we? When we go into a court, we have a, a right for somebody to help us before the judge. In our minds, when we think about God, we think about coming before Him, we, we, if we're aware of our sin, we, we, need, we need somebody to be there with us, or else it's not going to go very well. We are convicted of our sin, but if we, if we try to go before God just on our own merit, we're going to be condemned. That's what we deserve. But God has made a way for somebody to go with us. Now, some of you know the, the law system uh, probably much better than I do. Uh, but um, my one, my one run-in with a, with a judge, so to speak, uh, came through. Uh, some of you met Nicolette, who used to live with us before we came uh, to Fountain Inn. And uh, she was one of my wife's former foster sisters. And, um, and we, we were kind of helping her through high school. And so my, my in-laws and I, we, had, we got her a car. And so it was all you know, registered in my name. And I took care of insurance and, and uh, title and tag and everything. And, uh, and by my own fault, just, just with all the chaos of that, I, I didn't pay her the, the, the tag fee one year. I was, I was late on that. I just lost the paperwork. And so sure, sure enough, she gets pulled over at one point, 17-year-old girl. She's just driving a car. She has no idea what's going on. They pull her over, and then she's like, ma'am, your, your tag's out of date. She's like, what's a tag? You know, she had no idea what was going on, right? And, uh, but, but she's driving the car. So the officer gives her points on her license and a fine that she's got to pay. Right. And so she comes home like, what in the world is this all about? And so it was my fault. So, you know, of course, I'm, it's my fault. So I, I'm, I'm going to take it and figure it out. Um, so I, I pay the, you know, pay the original fee it had to be paid online. And then um, and then I go to court that day. Right. On her day. And what do we do? I, it's, it's my responsibility. I took ownership of this. Right. So I stand with her there in the courtroom waiting for her name to call, be called. The judge calls her name, but I'm the first one to the up there. 
I talk to a police officer. I talk to the judge and say, this is my responsibility. The car's in my name. I've paid it. Here's the receipt. If anything's wrong, put it on me, right? Because it's not, it's not her fault. She was driving the car, but it's not her fault. I, I, I'm taking it. Now, with us, it is our fault. But for the purpose of this, I, I'm taking responsibility. I was her advocate. I was interceding before, for, between her and the judge. I was standing between her. Because if 17-year-old Nicolette had to walk into that courtroom, she would have just been totally overwhelmed. She had no idea how to handle that. Now, she's grown. She can handle it now. You know? but, but we know what that looks like. We, we need somebody to go into the courtroom and say, I got this. I got this. It's under control. Many of us, when we think about coming before God, we, at least you know, outside the church, we think, hey, I, I got no problem. I can come before God. But we, we can't. We cannot come into the, the throne room of God, into the heavenly courtroom, and say, I, I got it. No. The Old Testament, they, people back in that time period, they, they had a better understanding of this than we do. They understood the job of a priest. The priest, we don't have priests today, but somewhere between a, a lawyer uh, and, and, you know, some, sometimes, and that idea is something the closest we have in our, in our culture. But a priest's job was to come into the special room in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it was behind this special curtain. And the, the, holy, the, the priest could come into that, that uh, Holy of Holies and make this one sacrifice once a year for the sins uh, uh, of the people of God. So Hebrews 5 describes the role of that, that priest and what he would do to understand, for us to understand how much we need somebody. We need that intercessor. So verses 1 and 4 describe how he was appointed and called by God. And verse 2 describes how he was gentle with sinners because uh, they, like him, he too was a sinner. So he was sympathetic. He wasn't perfect. And so he was gentle with sinners. And so... Verse 3 describes how he offered sacrifices first for his own sins, and then it says he offered sacrifices for the people. And that is such a foreign concept to our world today. People think, I can just come to God. I don't, I don't need a sacrifice. But here's one of the things, the Old Testament. As you read through the Old Testament, I know it can be laborious, and you can get kind of bugged down, bogged down. But here's what the Old Testament helps us see. We need that. We need somebody to go before God in our place because we can't just walk into His presence on our own. We need somebody to go before us. So Hebrews 5 describes what this looks like, that, he was, that this Old Testament priest made those sacrifices. But he had some limitations, didn't he? He had some limitations. So Hebrews 4 and 5 wants you to feel the conviction of your sins, but not to be condemned, because it offers something greater, something greater than just the Old Testament priest. We read about him in chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Here's the only way out of condemnation, is that we have Christ, our great high priest. Be comforted by Christ, our high priest. When we realize we need a high priest, it'll help us to see how beautiful this is of what Christ has done for us. Similar to the way the Old Testament priest was described Jesus was appointed by God. Chapter 5, verse 5, Christ did not exalt Himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by Him, by God. And similar to the way the Old Testament uh, priests were sympathetic, they were, they were gentle with people who were, were sinners, Jesus Himself was sympathetic. It says in verse, chapter 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted, with, tempted as we are. Man, how good news, how much good news is it that Jesus knows what you're going through? We've seen this already through Hebrews. He knows your grief. 
He knows your temptations. He knows your struggles, your pains, your sorrows. Jesus has walked a human life like we have. We have comfort knowing He's been in our shoes. But here's what sets Jesus apart. He didn't just walk in our shoes. He walked in our shoes how we were supposed to walk. He was perfect. Verse 15 says, In every respect He's been tempted, we are yet without sin. That's what we needed. We needed not just a high priest who was sympathetic to us. We needed a high priest who was perfect for us. He was sympathetic to us and he was perfect, sinless. The reason he can come into the throne room of God and stand before that judge, before, the God, before his Father, before God Almighty, is that he was sinless. He was perfect. I can't go into that throne room for you. You can't go for me. We can't represent ourselves in this court. We needed someone who was absolutely blameless before God. In that holy of holies, this, perfect, this, this representation of God's perfect holiness, only one person could go and only once a year. And even then, it was just a shadow of what Christ was doing. Christ, it says, He passed through the heavens. He didn't just go to a, a building made by, my, by hands. He went to God's throne itself. And He went there for you and for me. Only one person's ever been allowed there. And His name is Jesus. The Old Testament high priest kept being replaced generation after generation because, of course, the high priest passed away. But our great high priest, Jesus, he is eternal. Chapter 4, verse 14 describes him as the Son of God. Chapter 5, verse 6, you are the priest forever. Forever. We don't have to wait for another generation of priests. Jesus is our once and for all high priest. He went and passed through the heavens just and did just what we needed so that we can find comfort and His sacrifice for us. In Hebrews 5 uh, and 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, describes, that, I think with, with moving words, what Jesus did for us. Verse 7, it says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Surely this happened more than once, but we can't help but hear that and think of the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus, the night before He was being crucified, it knows what's coming. He's the Son of God. He knows what's coming. And who is He thinking about? He's thinking about you and me. That night he had been with his disciples and he had prayed for them and he had led them and told them what was coming. And, and yet he knew they were all about to abandon him. He knew what was coming. And yet he was praying for us. John 17 describes the way Jesus prays to the Heavenly Father. This incredibly beautiful prayer. And then we picture him out in the garden as he comes before the Father. And he's so overwhelmed with, with stress and anxiety. He's, he's bleeding out of his sweat. And He's praying and pleading for us. What, what a generous, gracious Savior we have. What comfort we have knowing He has been on that path before us. And then just hear what it says about Him. It says, He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries to Him who was able to save Him from death. He's praying to, to the Father knowing the Father has full power to stop it all. He could have stopped the cross right then and there. He could have just said, never mind. We're not doing it. God had that kind of power. He could have wiped out the entire Roman government without even thinking about it, much less stopped one crucifixion. And here's what it says. Jesus was heard. It says He was able to save Him. Talking about God. God was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. This got my attention this week. Why was Jesus, how was Jesus heard? He's, he's in the garden. You and I, when we come before God, and we plead with God to stop this or do that, or God, I need you to do this, and we can pray with all earnestness. And if it doesn't happen... We come to God and say, God, did you not hear my prayer? 
What a testimony to God's sovereign control and his love for us. He says the father heard the son's prayer that night. He heard him because of his reverence. He was coming with a pure heart before the father. And what did he pray? He said, not my will be done, but yours. The father heard that prayer and he said no to what he wanted. And yes to his sovereign will. The father heard him and answered, no, you're, you're going to the cross. The plan, we're going to continue the plan just like he had intended all along. What a, what a powerful description of prayer. And listen to what happened. It says, verse 8, although he was the son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, which is similar to the phrase in verse 9, and being made perfect. So Jesus was not morally imperfect. What he's talking about here is he carried out the plan. He was our perfect substitute, our perfect sacrifice, the perfect solution to our problem. He planned it all along, but he still had to carry it out, and so that's what he did. And so that's why Jesus is our perfect high priest and could be a comfort to us today. We, by God's word, are meant to be convicted, not condemned, but to find comfort in Christ because he walked the path we were supposed to walk. He went to the cross you and I should have gone to. He died the death we should have died. That's why He is a comfort to us. And so Hebrews gives us two final commands for us to follow today. Hebrews 4.14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. Hold tight. Over and over again, you see in Hebrews this language of hold fast. We get the idea, we'll see this later in Hebrews, that if, if you're having to be told to hold on to something, and what must be the case? The temptation must be that you're going to let go. As we go, we'll see that in the book of Hebrews, he's writing to a generation of Christians who were under fierce persecution for what they believed. We may not be to the same level they were, but your beliefs, our, our belief in, in one God, our belief in, in salvation being through Christ alone, that's not popular today. You and I are going to be tempted to let go of some beliefs, some foundational things about who God is and what He's called us to believe. You and I are going to be tempted to let go. And the Bible's word to us is hold fast to our confession. Do not let go. Hold fast. I think, I think of riding on a, on a tube behind a ski boat as you bounce across the waves. Don't let go. I, I think of being on a, on a bus or a subway or one of those trains and airport terminals that are bouncing you all around and all you got is this one little flimsy cord, right, that holds you standing up as it bounces around. Hold fast. Don't let go because you're going to fall down. I picture walking across a, a parking lot as I do all the time with our kids. And, and even if I got my hands full of something, I say, Lois, Micah, hold on to me. Do not let go. There are cars here. You got to hold fast. Your life depends on it. Are you holding fast to the confession we have of Christ? He is your comfort. He is your high priest. And if you let go, you're letting go of everything. You're letting go of everything. There are all kinds of fast-moving currents, as we've seen in, in Hebrews, that are, that are trying to take us astray, lead us away from God, to lead us away from holding fast to what matters most. Hold fast to who Jesus is. He is the perfect Son of God, who lived the perfect life and died a death that we deserve to die, went into the grave that we deserve to go into, but resurrected in a way that we would never have the power to do. He showed Himself to over 500 people in 40 days and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And from there he, He's overlooking and, and reigning over all things and He will return to make all things right. That is the, the, the gospel truth we hold fast to and we are never letting go. 
whatever else is tempting you, whatever else is distracting you, whatever else you've got your mind on, don't let go of that confession. Hold fast to Him because He is who we need. He is our eternal salvation. Our eternal salvation, Hebrews 5.9 says, forever and ever. If we're convicted by sin, we can praise God that we're comforted by, our holy, by, by Christ, our high priest, because we're holding fast to his confession, which leads us to the last command for us this morning, to draw near with confidence. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The secular, non-believing person ha- has no fear of God, has no fear of, of standing before God on His throne that day when we get to our last breath, that the, the non-believing person arrogantly thinks they can just walk right into that room. Our confession is not based on our own uh, abilities or pride. We do not have confidence because of us. We have confidence because of our great high priest. We can draw near to God, not because we're great, but because Christ is. We can trust that we can walk into His throne room not just at the end of our lives, but day in and day out. And we can be with our Heavenly Father, knowing that He loves us and cares for us and sees us as His own son and daughter if we believe in Him. I I heard about a picture that I I think is probably true, but I couldn't find it on Google, but I heard it from a trustworthy source. So even if this didn't happen, it still functions this way. This guy I, I heard describe a picture of John F. Kennedy in the Oval Office. And he's bending down and he's tying one of his son's shoes. But what makes that, that, that picture so impressive is that it was in the middle of a meeting with dignitaries from all around the world. And so you see this picture, supposedly, of all these people from all across the world standing all across the Oval Office. And you can imagine that if you traveled from all over and you're gonna have a meeting with the President of the United States, even if it's just for a few minutes, you, you, you have a few things you want to say, right? You've got, this is what I'm going to say, and this is what we need to talk about. And yet here's the president of the United States getting down on his knees, tying the shoes of his son. Why, why was he doing that? Was it because the son had earned that spot or had, had, a, had something to contribute to this important meeting? No. He was tying his shoe because that was his son. And his son didn't matter what, what, what position his son had, didn't matter what, what he had to contribute. No, you're, you can come to me, son, because you're my son, and I love you. We can draw near to God, not because of what we've accomplished, not because of anything we've done, but because we're his children, and we can be in his presence. Let me ask you, you've got, you've got a Bible. Even if you don't, we can get you one. Are you drawing near to God day in, day out? Are you letting God's word pierce your heart? Are you close enough to it that it can convict you of sin? We, we, we steer away from the Bible for any number of reasons, but one of them I think is we don't really want sin to be revealed in our lives. But we've, we've got to let the word of God pierce us so that we can find comfort in Christ. Draw near to Him today. Draw near to Christ our Savior. Draw near with confidence because that's where you'll find grace. That's where you'll find mercy. That's where you find forgiveness. It's where you find healing in Christ and in Christ alone. What we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper essentially is a a representation of that, of what Christ has done for us, that we get to enter into His presence, not because our body was broken, not because our blood was shed, though we certainly deserve that, but because Christ did that for us.
So our response today is to draw near through the Lord's Supper.